You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to M Pavilion 2019, designed by Australian architect Glenn Merkitt. My name is Jen Zelinska and I'm the public program manager here at M Pavilion. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakawilam as the traditional custodians, custodians on the land of which we meet. The Yalakawilam are part of the Boonwang, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, their elders, past, present, and to the future. Tonight's talk, The Power of Welcome in the Age of Loneliness, has been curated by Real Life, the power duo that is Ali Bird and Claire Fian. It's also made possible by our principal partner, RACV. For those of you who are not familiar with Real Life, Real Life was launched in Melbourne in 2018 and aims to support women in making real-life connections and building strong communities. Their philosophy is that meeting people in real life builds stronger, more meaning meaningful connections and adds to self-worth rather than net worth. So we're delighted to have them here this evening. I'll now pass over to Ali and Claire to begin this evening's event. Microphone. Yes. Hello, I'm Ali, and um, I'm one half of Real Life. And I'm Claire. Nice to see you all. Um, thank you for coming tonight under this beautiful architectural structure. Um, and it's really important to have people gathered as we talk about loneliness and um, the power of welcome in our community. Um, so Ali and I, we created Real Life because we wanted people to connect and build community. We strongly believe that we can lead richer, more rewarding lives if we build stronger social networks. Um, if you want to follow us on Instagram to see what we're doing next, it's at, at Real Life Working. So in our current climate, we think it's really important to provide avenues for people to come together, advocate and collaborate. Social connectedness and loneliness are two terms that we've seen a lot um, thrown around lately. We've seen reports about how loneliness is one of the new public health epidemics, as well as how it can in negatively impact on our mental health. And links have been made to depression and anxiety and loneliness. When I went to the internet, a tool which probably adds to our loneliness and also social connectedness to see if loneliness could be defined. Distinctions of being socially isolated and lonely kept coming up. From what I read, and our experts will um, obviously elaborate, um, loneliness and connectedness are subjective experiences. If a person thinks that they're lonely, then they're lonely. There are often two types of loneliness that are described in our communities. One being those who feel lonely even if they've got people around them, and the other being people feeling lonely and they have no one around them. Apparently, in our community, there are elderly people who can go for a month without speaking to anyone. Tonight, I hope our experts, Kara, Matu, and Laura, can shed some light on loneliness and how it may be felt in different communities and what we can do to help um, alleviate some of those feelings of loneliness to those who are feeling socially isolated. As always, we're going to have questions at the end, so um, please think of some, and we love hearing from our audiences. And now I'll um, introduce our excellent panel of speakers who um, have all been um, working in the field of loneliness for a number of years. And I think um, I was, we were talking earlier and we were saying like how um, loneliness has, you know, been something that's always been around, but in about the last three or four years, we're seeing more prevalence of it discussed about, which is a very good thing. Um, so I'll introduce you to Dr. Cara Harrington. She has a PhD, which is no small feat. And um, um, Cara essentially um, has her, some of her research interests are in the impact of loneliness on mental health and well-being, and understanding how best to support people experiencing loneliness. Kara is working with Dr. Michelle Lim on projects aimed at reducing loneliness in vulnerable populations, particularly older adults and young people. Um, she completed her PhD at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. And in her doctoral research, she also explored healthy ageing and changes in memory and other cognitive abilities. But I'll um, then move on to Matthew Bush. Matthew is a hybrid, which I always love... Uh, 
I think I've somewhat, maybe, I probably don't need a microphone or a knife, <laughs> um, is a clinician and a designer who founded One Good Street, which is a social impact platform in, to encourage neighbour-initiated care for older residents at risk of social isolation and loneliness. Matt, who is the de Deputy Director of the Health Transformation Lab at RMIT, designing towards cultures of innovation and creativity in healthcare. Matthew also has a master's in public health and broad clinical and managerial nursing experience, including working in Tijuana, Mexico, with Nobel Prize laureate, none other than Mother Teresa, which is pretty cool. Um, and Laura. So Laura Ruhan is um, essentially established a not-for-profit called Friends for Good. Um, and Friends for Good um, do a number of things and are called what we would say an Australian loneliness pioneer. Um, it raises awareness of loneliness as a significant issue in the community and addresses gaps in services to foster a greater sense of connection and well-being for individuals and communities. And um, Laura also works in the community centre in the West and we'll learn more about Laura's experience in helping people who are lonely in our community. Um, so without further ado, we'll get into learning a little bit more about loneliness. And yeah, thank you so much for coming. Okay, first question. Um, what is loneliness? How would you, can we get, um, how you would describe that in your experiences um, to the audience? <laughs> so I would say, Claire, your definition at the start was a pretty good one. <laughs> so well done. Um, I think it's really important to recognise that loneliness isn't about being alone. It's about how you feel about your relationships. And it happens when we have a mismatch between what our desired relationships are and what our actual relationships are. So it's something that I think we all intuitively have a sense of what it feels like. It's that negative, painful feeling. You kind of have that, oh, doesn't feel good. And the other thing that's really important to know about loneliness is that it's such a unique and individual experience, even though we intuitively have a sense of what it is because we each have our own experience of it, what that looks like for each individual person is going to be different. For some people, it will come from a big life event, from losing a loved one or moving house. And for other people, it will just seem like it's come out of the blue. They don't know why they're feeling lonely, but they are. So I think that's the other really important thing to know about loneliness. I like to look at those that people who love solitude and so define it from that point of view as so people who love solitude have really made peace with the fact that they may not have a lot of people in their lives, they may not have strong connections in their lives and they've, they've found a comfort zone within that, whether that's from an existential point of view or uh, just a practical point of view. So people who love solitude have the antidote to loneliness. So I like to describe those sorts of people who don't get enough airspace because with, and we must trust that they enjoy their lives. We, we can't look at them and go, you love being alone, you're a hermit, there's something wrong with you because we're health professionals. That's wrong. So in, 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 in defining loneliness, I define the person who loves solitude and then it's the reverse of that. It's, it's the flip of that, it's the negative of that. These are really great definitions. Um, I also like to say, I always make sure I mash in there somewhere, that loneliness is normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Like, it's okay. Like, it's a, it's a part of the human experience. So, yeah, I like to mash that in there somewhere. Um, and it is, of course, as unique as all of us are. So, it's unique as the individual's experience. Never desired. So, that from um, what Carol was saying there. Um, and, it's, yeah, it's okay. Like, I think that's really important to reinforce. Um, as I was listening to these definitions as well, something that I've heard from someone experiencing really chronic acute loneliness was I'm not connected to anything. A, p a place, a person, I'm not connected to anything. Um, so, yeah, looking at that, about actual phys connection. Um, so, in your fields, where do you see loneliness um, and who do you see it um, most prevalently in the community? We'll start with it. We're very orderly. It's like we've done this before. Um, I saw loneliness across the road. 
there's a giant sign at the NGV there because there's an international art exhibition um, where an artist has put together um, some fantastic work looking at connection in the age of loneliness. So I see it in pop culture references. Um, I see it in everybody. Um, as the ladies mentioned, I work in a community centre in Melbourne's West. So I live and work in the West. Um, I work in a very disadvantaged community and I see loneliness. It looks really different in everyone. I see it in that community. Um, I see it in my queer community. And it's, again, really different and unique. Um, I see it in some of my life experiences, whether it's moving, um, travelling, studying, all sorts of things I've done. Um, I see it in my peers. A friend and I regularly have a conversation, how do you make friends in your 30s? We're working on it. If anyone's got any ideas, love to hear them. I've, it looks to me like I have the answers, and I don't. <laughs> um, it looks different in everybody. I think one of the really insidious things about loneliness is it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care who you are, how good looking, how tall, how much money you have, um, how many Instagram followers. It, it, it doesn't care. Um, that it, it does affect everybody differently and it will affect most people, if not everyone, at some point in their life. So I focus on older people, so people over 85 years of age. And, you know, Australia's having a crisis in value on a range of things, but definitely a crisis in how we value older people. So I see the most acute expressions of loneliness is when we find somebody who's died in their house 15 months later. And that happened in Gippsland about three, four months ago. So I presented in forums where community nurses from rural areas have spoken about finding someone two and a half years after they had died. Now, in, uh, that's where loneliness and social isolation is felt so acutely. We've designed the world's first wearable to detect loneliness. It's a pin that counts the number of words you speak and it sends an SMS message off to family, friends, friends for good, to a whole range of people, rotary, volunteer home visitor schemes, to bump up your word count. There are people who are, in there who are 87, 93, 101 who live alone and have no one in their lives apart from maybe a community nurse or a care worker. And they may speak 50 words a day. You and I speak 20,000 words a day. So there's a poverty. Loneliness is manifest as a poverty of conversation for those that can no longer get out and enjoy their, their, their communities because of immobility and ageing. So I see it most acutely in older people. And it's a conversation that Australia is having with the Royal Commission into Aged Care about how we value these social libraries that live amongst us. So I see it most acutely in those that are older. So what we see when we look at the research literature on the area is that young people and older people are the most vulnerable to experience loneliness. And it seems like maybe that's to do with it being such a time of transition. If you think about being a young person, maybe you're going off to uni, you're moving away from home, you're starting a job. And similarly, if you're an older person, maybe you're retiring, maybe you're also relocating, and there's lots of other life changes that are happening. So in our lab at Swinburne, we tried to take a snapshot of loneliness amongst Australians, and we put out the Australian Loneliness Report last year, where we had an online survey with over 1,500 Australians who filled in a whole bunch of questionnaires about their loneliness, their mental health, their physical health. And what we saw from that was that actually one in four Australians were telling us that they feel lonely and that they feel so lonely that it's coming through on all of these surveys that they're filling in for us. And that even more than that, about half of the people that did our survey were telling us that they felt that they lacked companionship, at least sometimes. So they might not be telling us, I feel lonely, because sometimes we don't want to admit that we feel lonely, but we might feel more comfortable to say, oh, I'd like to have more people around. Sometimes I feel like I don't have enough companionship or friendship around. So certainly I would agree that we see it at both ends of the spectrum in terms of the lifespan, but that really it can affect anyone. You know, if we're talking about half the people at any one time are feeling they're lacking companionship, that's a lot of people that are experiencing loneliness. 
I think um, I was uh, listening to a podcast recently, which was a, on a, um, by this guy, Paul Dolan, who's a professor, professor of behavioural sciences, and he was speaking at the London School of Economics, and he was talking about social media and young people and how, um, you know, equally it can lead to greater connection, and I guess maybe this 100 and year old person dying in their home may not be, you know, uh, open to that technology, but that not to use technology to replace social connections, so use it as a conduit. So I'm sure you all found out about tonight, probably from social media, but then you came and you, you know, are here in real life. So I think that's a really interesting kind of observation. And um, how else do you think... Um, I guess, like, to combat loneliness then. So we've heard a lot about the fact that people are lonely and one in four people are lonely. Um, but, you know, maybe, Matthew, you could talk about One Good Street and Friends for Good and, you know, everybody is here tonight. But, yeah, how do we sort of shape our society and work on policies to then now combat a huge sort of public health issue? So I think um, I, I don't believe technologies a malignant prophecy for humanity. So I'm not a techno-pessimist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because it's so simple to say your Instagram hello has no, uh, is not valid. Yeah. And that's wrong because there's times when, when we, we, we take much from our, our social media connections and, and, I, and I think it deserves the respect that you, you, you get from it. So yes, technology, I would not say the evidence is there to say it drives us all apart. Um, and, and, and if you think that, we need to contest it because I haven't seen any evidence to say an Instagram hello is any less valid as a physical hello in the street. And some people find nourishment in both. And so if you're person-centred, you, you respect the, how, how and where you find nourishment. So look, One Good Street's just an online platform. We use Facebook and we've got a thousand plus members and it's all about just making our streets better places to live. So it's not hugely ambitious. It's like micro-ambitious. Can I make my street a better place to live by connecting to the older residents in my street? Say hi, help out, really simple stuff. When it's 38 degrees in Melbourne, just open up your house and run an aircon club for anyone that's older in your neighbourhood. And that stops them getting unwell in the heat and then ending up in emergency departments. Chronically isolated older people use emergency departments 40% more than their peers. So it's just a simple platform. It creates a participation culture. So it's this beautiful blend of the tactile and the digital. You log on, you see opportunities to take an older person out for a bike ride. You say yes to that. You contribute, the identity of the older person is protected. No one needs to tell me here, and at many forums, people say, what about if you don't want anyone in your life? Good, it's not for you, bugger off. <laughs> Enjoy your solitude hermit, hermit life. Good for you, this is not for you. So we're not impeding anyone. We're ethical because we're just offering more, better choice for people who are isolated through this online platform, and we don't compete against anyone else. We don't compete against you. We promote your service within ours. And I think that's the future also of anyone working in isolation and loneliness. We cannot be isolatory in our approach in community health or in community welfare services. We just have to work in this. We need to be highly promiscuous for partnerships. Well, and on that note, <laughs> Matu's right. Um, community services is not immune to living in silos and it would be disastrous and highly ironic and tragic if we were all like, yeah, we're going to be champions for combating loneliness and social isolation, but we won't talk to anyone about it um, and we won't collaborate. So I used to have a manager and his favourite saying was, we're not going to reinvent the wheel. We're not going to reinvent the wheel and low-hanging fruit, Laura, low-hanging fruit. And I'd go, yep, what's he talking about? <laughs> um, so I think I have a bit of an understanding now. But we, we work with Matu, many multiple, multiple organisations. So Friends for Good started three years ago. Uh, my co-founder, Patricia Laurie, and I had worked together in um, some seniors community services and we've had varied careers across community services. Um, my background's community development and human rights. Um, so it's interesting for me to theorise about loneliness, human rights, human connection. Very interesting. So we talked about loneliness. We kept on seeing it in people that we worked with and people that we worked for. People often didn't say the word lonely, but the experience they were describing was some of those textbook Googleable definitions of loneliness. 
Um, and so we had those conversations. Someone should do something about this. Someone should do something. And I was like, you know what? It's going to be us. Let's do it. Two overly ambitious people. So three years later, um, we've come up, we, we've done research. Um, we run a national phone service and it's literally just a conversation service. So we have a 1-800 number. We have trained supported volunteers. So three nights a week. Yes, we'd love to have it 24-7. We're working on it. Um, people literally just ring up and have a conversation. Usually the first question is, so how does this work? Um, and we just have friendly chats. Uh, we have very regular callers. Our lines open at 6 o'clock and on the dot, people start ringing. 6 p.m.? Um, 6 p.m. So it's an evening service. So one of the things for us is that around the feedback of designing the service was, you know, loneliness isn't 9 to 5, but a lot of services and therefore possibilities or opportunities for people to interact were very sort of 9 to 5. But it's when you get home and maybe the house is empty, you know, you're sitting down for your dinner for one, that some of these feelings kind of creep in. So a lot of people contact us, um, younger people who work full-time, had a picture of a day, just want to talk about this, um, but not to someone, you know, that knows me. It's a completely anonymous service. So there's a lot of safety in that for people to sort of perhaps open up about their experience of loneliness or just say, look, you're the first person I've spoken to all month. Um, can I ring back? Absolutely. And just encourage that conversation. We've had a regular caller phone us back and say, I just want to let you know that a volunteer gave me some information about arts access and now I'm going to a regular art class and I've got funding for art supplies. Um, that's a huge win for us. Also, the people that don't call back who maybe in a few months' time they do and say, oh, I actually don't need to talk to you anymore. I've gone and joined a group or something has changed for me. Um, so that's literally just providing someone with a listening ear is one of the most powerful things that we've, that we've come to do. In my day job at a very busy community centre, the same thing. I tell all our volunteers, staff, anyone who will listen, um, that the most important tool that we have is a kettle. So we run a drop-in service. Anyone can come in for a cuppa. People just wander in, sit down. They might talk to someone, they might not, but it's a, an open, inviting, non-judgmental space where people can just come. And there's not really a terrible lot of those anymore. Um, so providing actual opportunities for people to come together, they can talk or not, um, but just meet in a space where they feel comfortable um, is, yeah, something really important as well. Well, then I think hats off to the both of you because you also run, you know, very busy day lives and then to form a not-for-profit three years ago and, and keep funding happening, which at the moment receives no government funding and you put money into research, I think that sh shouldn't be underestimated and as well founding One Good Street. And I think when I grew up, my street was, you know, it was very very much like everybody was out on the street, you knew all of your neighbours. So the world has changed and hopefully we're starting to do things with these organisations that are, you know, changing things and bringing them back to somewhat the way they were, but, yeah, using technology, which is It's, it's a real cultural thing too. Yeah. So I grew up in the country and I think it's ingrained in me yeah. that, you know, I'll talk to a lamppost, um, like I'll talk to anyone. Yeah. Um, I've used the <laughs> joke before that my nephew thinks I'm really famous. He's eight... <laughs> He lives over the other side of Melbourne and we'll go for a walk to the park or whatever we're doing. And he's like, so you know everyone, right? You're famous. And I'm like, yeah, of course I am. Um, I'm famous Lego builder. He's obsessed with Lego. And he believes me because he's eight. Um, and then I kind of went on a bit and I was like, no, 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 I'm actually not famous. Don't tell people that. I said, I'm just friendly. Like, I like to talk to people. I'm a bit smiley and I say hello. And he's like, oh, so you're like pop. So my dad, I'm like, yeah. I'm oh. totally like pop. That's, it is. It is like definitely coming out in your personality. You are very friendly. Um, Cara, I think, I mean, last year there was how I found Cara is that she worked with Dr. Michelle Lim. They published an Australian loneliness report that came out last year, late 2018. You know, it's heavily covered by the ABC, etc. And I think we had a discussion maybe, yeah, late last week and um, you sort of spoke to research which were pretty much tips to combat loneliness. So would you like to share some of those insights? So... Some of the things that we were talking about, um, if you guys are interested to see it in writing, if you search for the Australian Loneliness Report, you can get all the information about what we found from our survey. And if you search for Connect to Thrive, you can find the tips. Um, 
But what our tips were really about were about trying to put aside some of our own barriers and own stuff that we carry with us. So sometimes when we're feeling lonely or we're feeling a bit down on ourselves, we have quite a negative perspective when we're going into a social situation or we get really anxious about what's going to happen. Are they going to judge me? Is it going to go well? Are they going to laugh at me? What might happen? And sometimes that really gets in the way of then being able to listen, ask questions, just slow things down and pay attention and connect with the person that we're with. So then even when we are going into these situations, we're missing out on the benefit because we're so wound up in, oh no, this is going to go wrong. This is going to be really bad for me. So we don't, then we kind of reinforce that because we're not getting the, the benefit from it because we're not able to be present with the person. So that's one thing. The other thing was around being able to think about what might be meaningful connection for you? Because for everyone that looks different. So for someone that might be going and joining an art class or ringing up friends for good and having a chat or having their air conditioning club, or it might be something else. It could be taking their dog for a walk and spending time with their pet. It could be doing their gardening and really connecting with their home and the place that they live in. So thinking about what are those connections for you that are really meaningful and fulfilling that help you fill that social need that you have, which may or may not be with another human. For some people, it's not about another human. It is about a place or it is about a pet or it is about an activity. So thinking about those things. The other thing is also thinking about what connections you already have. So for some people, it's finding new opportunities. For other people, it's thinking about, oh, I haven't spoken to this really good friend of mine for a while. Maybe I'll send them an Instagram message or maybe I'll give them a call or maybe I'll pop in for a cuppa. So thinking about how you can reconnect with the people that you already have in your life as well and strengthening up those connections too. So what that looks like for each person is going to be a little bit different but thinking about what that might look like for you. And I think I would add to that as well as if you're really finding some of those internal barriers, those worries about social situations or that kind of negative expectations, all going to go so wrong. If that's really getting in the way, then a great option is also to go and see a psychologist to talk about some of that stuff and to come up with some more tailored strategies to help you. And so that's why we put together those recommendations with the Australian Psychological Society as well to really encourage people that it's okay to ask for a hand with this stuff as well. There's some great research that looked at choirs as being the best way to reduce your isolation and loneliness. There's something about choirs and singing together that quickens your connection with others. And we need this kind of evidence to help us. And you also need a menu of options, some stuff intrinsic to yourself, like, you know, reach out to, to people locally or, or your own networks, and stuff that's intrinsic. You know, sometimes when you meet someone out and you didn't expect that, it's, it's delightful. So it's a combination of both because there's a real risk that the government will fund a whole lot of buses to take all these people who are 85 out for horrible bus trips that they didn't consent to and to go to, like, boring, boring places. So there's a real risk that we, we just cluster people together and expect it to happen. And you've got to curate it. Otherwise, it just makes it a whole lot, whole lot worse. So for us, the, the beginning of, of ethics is providing great choices. That's the beginning of any ethical exploration with another human is just... I don't, we're not change makers. We're choice makers. We, we provide choices for people. And then it, the more quality choice sets, like singing in a choir or art class or whatever, um, gives people the exercise of autonomy. And when you exercise your autonomy, it's a great feeling and you start to do it a little bit more. I mean, I think um, that completely resonates with me because I, I was um, clicked on a link the other night, which was the pub choir. And, and I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this, but I guess it's like people singing in a pub. And I, I assume it started quite small, but anyway, it was a huge packed auditorium and um, all of these strangers coming together and singing. And um, yeah, we also heard from a psychological cognitive point of view, um, we did a talk here last year, which was the benefits of um, music therapy. And so you can see why those two would marry up quite well. 
and then also why, from a policy perspective, putting old people on a bus is not the right note to strike. So, um, yeah, working towards how we can shape society which looks after this loneliness epidemic and, but, yeah, supports people with different avenues. So... There's some great models. Uh, they, they have been trialled in Australia, but they work really well overseas. And not everything that works in Finland is going to work here. And one of the things they did was bring uni students to live with older, older women who... Because there's about 3.8 million older women in Australia who live alone over the age of 80. By 2030, there will be. And so the idea is to offer free board to uni students so they spend time with each other and they get free accommodation if they spend time with the older person. In, in Norway, Sweden, they've got um, university students living inside of retirement living. So there's a combination. Not everyone wants to be surrounded by a four-year-old. <laughs> so it's, again, it's tailoring. So you've got a, a set of choices. You go, yeah, I'll have an 18-year-old. No, God, give me a 35-year-old. Um, how old are you? <laughs> Good question. Um, the thing is providing choices. And then there's some great um, models where they take women who are, who are at risk of domestic violence and are fleeing domestic violence and match them in with women who have four-bedroom houses who are 85, for example. And there's ways of doing it, but they're really, really tailored. And there's policy loves to just go, here's, here's just spray it on and it's going to work, but it's going to be nuanced and tailored to a range of, uh, to provide a range of quality choices. The more people that we, the more, the more diverse the voices are talking about these things, then the more diverse our choices will be, the more choices that we will have. In my mid-twenties, I worked um, in residential aged care. So I worked in a nursing home. And I very quickly had this fear that one day some well-meaning young woman would be painting my fingernails. <laughs> like, and that's my idea of hell. <laughs> that I would be in a situation where I may not, my choices weren't, choices weren't available to me. They were being made for me because people didn't understand me because they didn't ask the right questions. And as I said, some well-meaning teenage girls painting my nails and I'm like, this is living hell. This is, this is not for me. Um, so the more, more conversations like this we have, the better understanding as a community that we have around our own needs, around the needs of our neighbours and thinking about the future, thinking about the past and drawing on our experiences is going to give us that, those, that nuance. It's going to give us choices. I totally agree. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution and it's never going to be. If you just stick a group of people together, it's not going to work. You can't just, as Matia was saying, just stick a bunch of people on a bus, ship them out somewhere and hope they're all going to make great friends and you know, get along well. It just doesn't work like that. So it really is an individual approach and it needs to really be focused on what the person wants and what the person needs. It's so important to think about. So, yeah, it is so important to think about our individual needs um, and the needs of others. I guess um, in terms of architecture and how our city of Melbourne is growing so quickly, which is fantastic, um, but how, what suggestions or ideas or um, what would you love to see in a city that's getting big and I guess um, getting more vertical? Yeah. So there's some fantastic designs where your, your front um, fence can flip and become a table and where your letterboxes can become drink holders. And there are ways of, of, of introducing just natural collision. Because if I have to walk past you, I might make eye contact. If I've got a dog, I'm definitely going to... If you've got a dog, I'm going to make eye contact with you. So, so those sorts of designing towards social collision yeah. is absolutely in the realm of architecture and town planning. And, uh, and there's, there's a few apps that are great as well in regards to um, most apartment blocks now have an, have an app uh, when, when you go in there where everyone can join and share things. They need to be moderated though because often it can become a place where you accuse somebody from not putting out the rubbish and it goes into racial profiling and all hell breaks loose. That happens on like neighbor, neighbourhood next door and all that kind of stuff. So, so I've seen really good examples of doing a map of a city where the most of the, the likely social collision happens and then putting in park benches there. And that's the sort of thing we could fund if Bunnings are in the, in the around wanting to fund. We could fund, if you, any of you have been overseas... Anyone, you don't have to be Bunnings. You can be from a rival hardware store or just someone who likes building seats. We'll or have to they see. exist? <laughs> where they, they put um, all, uh, seats that are uh, for older people to sit out 
in, uh, and watch the day go by. And if you've ever been to Portugal or Italy, the nonnas sit out there judging the world, tutting everyone. Or your local shopping centre during the yeah. day. Correct. So just more seats for people to sit so that you can see. And there's some great research done how older people love, long-lived adults enjoy the, the house being more porous so they can hear the rhythm of the day. Because there's, if you've got no one in your life, you hear the school kids drop off, you hear the post person. That sort of uh, uh, ways of making that more um, accessible to others. And, and then also thinking about adjacencies like Australia Post. Australia Post could be the, the foot soldiers for reducing isolation and loneliness because they visit everyone's house every day in Australia. They could be saying hi. So there's this duality because you can design a beautiful space, you can be lonely in it. So there has to be this activation piece. So it is an absolute dance between the architects, the town planners, the, the people that activate spaces like ourselves. And look, um, yeah, I think that's that's sort of, uh, I guess, about encouraging maybe pro-social behaviour. And I think um, what we often think about is um, po possibly is a burden to help that lonely person. But I guess what we don't realise is flipping your fence up is that you get possibly, just as I mean from a psychological point of view, um, you know, the good from helping others. And, and I think we talked about this before, which is your volunteers on the end of that friend line, well, they're leaving after those two hours of chatting with people, possibly feeling just as good as the lonely person. So I think in terms of that, like, you know, individual kind of uh, direction or um, instead sharing and having that, that thought and encouraging what it means to actually help somebody and how... Um, I guess you could think of it from a selfish point of view. So instead of your self-worth, like um, individual self-worth, sorry, I'm completely <laughs> rambling. But yeah, <laughs> but anyway, basically the good that comes from helping others is where I'm getting at. Yeah, look, we, we spoke about volunteering. So I've been involved with volunteering my whole life, really. Um, there's, there's often a, a good volunteering to me is, is beyond just yes, it's meaningful and I'm participating in a meaningful way and I'm getting something from this. It's a free giving. But to me, good volunteering is you can't quite work out who's, who's the volunteer and who, who's providing a service and who's receiving a service. That interaction, that exchange doesn't exist. It's about someone, you know, I'm, I'm a full-time foster carer and I often forget that that's volunteering, bizarrely enough, because I don't think about it like that, that I'm volunteering to do something like that. And it's one of the things where I find I feel like I'm getting far more than I'm giving. Now, I know, like, academically and literally that's not true, but it's providing me opportunities and learning experiences and 20,000 words a day. I'm a 15-year-old at home. I reckon it's about 120,000. Um, you know, it's, it provides a whole different exchange and it's not about who's receiving something and who's getting something. We're all getting something. So we're all connected and we're having a meaningful exchange within that volunteering scope. It can provide someone with an identity. So we've spoken about retirement. So if you're... Often our identity is really tied to what we do as an occupation. You go to a party, one of the first things someone might say to you is, oh, so what do you do? Terrible question, I think. <laughs> um, but we often, you know, that gives us an identity, some belonging, people can place us. And that's something that I... I've, from having people call our services or on our online chats, something that I've sort of come across is people who are experiencing loneliness are really quick to give themselves, like, um, a value or a place. So it puts us maybe on, a, on the same footing. So someone might say, oh, I'm retired, but I, I work part-time now. Or there's the kind of reaching for a social connection that they can kind of hang themselves on for a bit. Or I used to work, but I was injured... Uh, and they might talk about that. And they're obviously maybe grieving about that loss of occupation and identity and connection, but people are very quick to kind of grab onto something like that. Um, you, you yourselves have probably seen that or heard that as well within conversations mm -hmm. or literature. Yeah, I think the helping others piece can be really helpful for yourself as well, especially if you are experiencing some of those barriers of anxiety or feeling low in yourself it can seem really confronting to out of the blue strike up a conversation with a person or with a lamppost, if you're Laura. <laughs> so, 
volunteering gives you a structure and a framework that you can participate in. You're there with a purpose. You've got something to do. And if you're talking to someone, whether you're volunteering on a phone service, so you're just naturally going to have conversations because that's why you're there, or if you're doing something else where you're working alongside other volunteers, you naturally have an icebreaker to start to talk to people about the work that you're doing because you're both there for a shared purpose. And I think like the, the choir idea, because you're there for a shared purpose and you're helping together, it, it kind of fast tracks some of that connection stuff because you kind of get over that trying to find a commonality because you're already there together for the same reason. Just a provocation. I don't think architects, I mean, we love architects, they're great, but maybe they don't have the power that we think they have to create social change and that maybe they inhale their own legend before they actually build something. So potentially, they don't have the power to do it. It's up to us in spaces to activate that. It's something deeply human to solve loneliness rather than franchise it and then potentially apportion blame for not designing well. So we can design better spaces, we can design better experiences, uh, but that, is, that may be different from built form and maybe we're fetishising the architect thinking that, that somehow, with just the right combination of, of, of lines and clean surfaces and whiteness, that we'll get some kind of connection. So I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And we need to... I mean, currently, if, I've just been to Japan and $35 billion worth of robotics development for their ageing population, $35 billion. Robots will wash you, clean you, toilet you, there's robotic seals, there's robotic dogs, there's robotic cats. Now, we can find some connection with that and also voice within the home. So there's a lot of technology that's coming to solve isolation and loneliness. So next year we might be discussing whether a robot is a suitable um, um, substitute for companionship. And for some people it may be. Um, but that's the same sort of thing where we fetishise something apart from our own selves to solve something either built form or robotics. I think a park is a good example, and I'm looking around, but not this one because it's so well manicured. But you can, you've probably been to a park and you're walking along a path and there'll be some diagonal path that's trodden by everyone, whether it's on the way to the train station or it's... There's paths laid out because someone has said, this is where people will walk and this is a great, perfect design environment. Yeah, everyone goes, no, we want to go this way. So you've got things designed and built and engineered around you but people, I, I love seeing the way people react to things and use them in different ways, whether it's technology or a, a built environment. Like, yeah, those steps are great for sitting on. They're also great for skateboarding if you can do that or all sorts of things. Um, but, yeah, I think a park is a good example of that, that, that line that people will go, no, this is the way we're going. Thanks for your path, but we're going this way. The dirt's often better. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, this has been such an insightful discussion up here, but we'd love to kind of uh, pass to the audience for any particular questions and also um, ask you guys if you wanted to sort of share any more particular insights before we, yeah. Keen to hear from you all. We're not leaving unless we get five questions. We're not leaving, yes. <laughs> um, we live here now. <laughs> who in the audience has felt lonely? <laughs> Is it on? Um, yeah, question about the 3.5 billion, was it, for Japan? Um, I guess we talked about um, social media as well. So tying those two ideas together in the future, I guess, like what are the stats revealing? Are the, are the robots um, legitimately helping a lot of people, um, these sort of androids or these robot seals or whatever they are? Um, how much are they helping? And I guess also to address the sort of pessimistic future potential of, of what that looks like. I guess if you look forward then 50 years, are we all sitting in rooms with the robot cats? Yeah. So they did some research on the robot cats and animals and they found that it was giving as much pleasure for people with cognitive disabilities or cognitive problems, so people with dementia, as animals. But the, that research doesn't mean that robotic animals are better than real ones because they cost $6,000 to get this. Um, it's called a paro seal, so check that out online. And um, 
And so the Paro seal kind of looks at you and wriggles around a bit and, and, and tracks your eye movement, etc. So they believe it's, it, it provides what's called soft fascination for someone with dementia, for example. Um, and there are presence there. What they found with voice in the home of people that were isolated was people, so this is Alexa and something called Sophie Hub, was that older people felt that there was a, like a guardian angel effect. So they do find some benefits. So we can't throw it all out, but at the same time, uh, it, it's not either or. And so certainly we would, in the, in the future, um, I, I, we won't be subjected to either or. There'll always be this, this and we need to aim for this fusion of, of tactile and digital. And I guess there's a, uh, an access point. I mean, people who might be on the fringes or, uh, you know, the affordability of this technology are locked out of that as well. Sure. Japan doesn't have enough people to care for the older people, so the government will be funding the robots to do the washing, the cleaning, etc. And what they've done is they haven't... They've turned it into kind of zoological kind of little characters running around, which is more socially acceptable in that society. Um, so have a look at what they're doing. I was on the stage with the advisor to the health minister of Japan, and they were absolutely committed to that. They were committed to the funding of robots, but not to the opening up of their immigration policy to allow other cultures to come in and do the caring. We, we're different in Australia in the sense that we uh, have opened up to uh, Philippines, Ireland, other, um, uh, other caring uh, uh, cohorts uh, who are able to come and do the work. And I think in Australia we'll avoid that because the atolls in the Pacific that are suffering from climate change, there are whole populations that will need to move into Australia. So we're about 100,000 care workers short, and that's a beautiful opportunity to welcome those individuals in. East Timor has an unemployment rate of 20%, so there is um, an opportunity to recruit people in to work in care for a short period of time, and then they can exit if they so desire or stay in it. And that's worked successfully. So I think Australia will be able to avoid it as, a, as an effect of climate change because more people will migrate here from those atolls that are actually sinking. Any other questions while we... I'm still learning how to use my iPhone. So um, I think it would be interesting having that technology. Having said that, the person who like taught me how to use an iPhone is in her late 90s and is exceptionally tech savvy and has been my IT guru for several years now. So don't be ageist when it comes to technology. Hey. Um... I'm Jesse, and I don't really know what question to ask because I had two. But you can ask them both. Uh, so, <laughs> um, right, so the first one, I guess, is uh, about common spaces and how they need to be moderated. Otherwise, they become like a negative space, conversation place. So how can you actually moderate a sort of common space so it's a positive environment? Uh, moderators. <laughs> so often um, leadership. Leadership. So leadership looks really different in every situation or circumstance where it's exercised, I think. Um, I live in an apartment building and we have a Facebook page. Um, so someone took it upon themselves to set up a Facebook page and to create an online community where we can communicate and then do the same thing but face-to-face. -face. Um, if it's a community centre, for example, so there are staff... Um, there has been established a culture of this is the expectation of behaviour in this space. We're not, we don't have to be explicit about it, but we show it in our actions that we're open, that we're non-judgmental. Um, we are in a very disadvantaged community, so we, we do have signs saying we have a zero tolerance to drug and alcohol use. Um, so that's a factor for that environment, and that can be a case where things are explicitly stated. But there is essentially a staff member. There's a person there who kind of oversees that, who interacts in all different ways in that environment, but basically it's physically moderated by a presence of somebody. I think it's the... So I run a, a lab and we bump in and, and bump out on a regular basis so that it's reset. So within a time frame, three or four events can occur, but it's bumped in and out, so it, it's reset every single day, which gives it the freshness to then do something new in that space without a, a persistent dominance. Now, that's harder in, in communal spaces outside, but that is, there is a way of, of sort of bumping in and bumping out that kind of resets it, that says, new day, no one can dominate. Yeah. 
I'll, I won't ask the other question. That's fine. <laughs> You're welcome to. You guys have got great hair. <laughs> I mean, uh, my... Um, I feel... Any other questions? Feel free to. I'm sorry. I'm going <laughs> to hog the mic, but um, uh, then and now, I'm I'm sort of not convinced in terms of how lonely people were 100 years ago or to um, these days. Like, what are the what's the sort of literature on it? Um, do we have any going back? Like, how far does it go back? What do we know about loneliness in terms of the last hundred or 200 years, or how far does that go back? So I guess one of the things that gets said a lot these days is that we've got a loneliness epidemic. We actually can't answer that because we don't have the data to tell us that it's an epidemic. What we do know is that over the past couple of years, up to maybe five years, there's been this growing body of evidence that shows that loneliness is really important for our mental and our physical health. And so there's this big surge now of awareness and that's why it seems like an epidemic because we're talking about it so much more because we realize actually it's so important for our heart health, for our pain, for chronic illness, it's related to disability, it's related to dementia. Lonely older people are at a substantially higher risk of developing dementia than non-lonely people of being re-hospitalized. If you've got a family around you who is taking care of you and supporting you, you're much more likely to be able to stay at home for longer. And we also know that lonely people have higher symptoms of depression and anxiety. So in terms of our mental well-being as well, loneliness has a significant impact. So I, I wouldn't say that there's the data there to show that it's, it's an epidemic or there's been this huge increase in loneliness because we're in this digital age and we're all looking at our phones and not connecting or whatever the reason might be. But I think there is this growing awareness that's really important because loneliness seems to have such a strong impact on our health. And also the, the net increase in older people. So this is the first time that we've had such long-lived adults in society, which is a mark of our a range of successes. And so, so much so now that there's a new box of 100 to 100, I think it's 110 to, to tick on. And uh, because we've never experienced the volume of older people that are living and uh, who are living much longer than their children and also their friends. So therefore, situationally, they are more isolated and, or at risk of loneliness. And then comes that risk of, of suicide. And I was recently in Hong Kong, which has one of the highest rates of suicide for over 75-year-olds in the world. And so there is uh, where older people self-exit because they don't want to be a burden. And, um, and that's, that then, because we're getting better statistics, we can see it more. And also it costs money. So I help advise the health minister on a, on a board um, called Better Care Victoria. And we know this stuff costs us a lot of money. The lonelier you are, you're, you're going to be in ED more, you're going to be with GPs more, and, uh, and you're going to cost a lot more. So I think there's a motivation from a cost perspective uh, to, to reduce it in society. And because loneliness is... Um to try and dissipate those feelings, it takes time as well. So, you know, we've mentioned social isolation. Um, a friend of mine has recently gone back to work after having her first baby and she was like, I'm climbing the walls. I need to be around people that can actually talk. Um, so for her, it was easy for her to... Easy. I clearly don't have a baby. Um, to throw Bub into the pram and go down to the local coffee shop and that was her solution, to have a coffee out, just to be around people and she felt better relatively quickly. Whereas the feelings of loneliness, so we, we, you know, we've mentioned things like pain and discomfort and, you know, it's bad for your heart. Literally, it's bad for your heart. Like your cardiac health suffers. That it takes time to, to, get, over, to get over these or to reduce those feelings and to, to feel as connected as you want to be. So more hospital presentation, you know, more higher inter medical interventions over time as well. So certainly very costly to, to the economy and to obviously the individuals as well. And from a thinking about pain perspective, what actually happens at a neurological level in your brain when you feel physical pain is the same as what happens when you feel loneliness, when you feel social pain. If we look at what's happening in the brain, it's the same parts of the air, 
the same areas of the brain, the same parts that are affected, that are activated when you're feeling that social pain. So it really is a physical response to this feeling, this emotional experience. I love the neuroscience. Thank you, Cara. Um, on a um, reverting back to One Good Street, like if I wanted, like I know you've, uh, it's uh, quite self-contained and you were saying there is a thousand members, but if I wanted to sort of start a One Good Street in my neighbourhood, how would I go about doing that? You probably already you probably already are doing it because if you're a friendly sort of outward looking person you're probably already saying hi etc. So you can join uh, One Good Street on Facebook and uh, where there's a thousand people on there. You can join the website and your street changes colour. So if you just put in your street name, it changes colour and we go to government and say these are the best streets to age in. We also go to real estate agents and say, look, these, you, you better auction this house well because this has been accredited as a caring street for older people. So it raises property prices because it's, it's valuable. Social capital is valuable. Right? It's how you pay people for getting involved. Close to cafes, to your house. train station, caring neighbourhood. <laughs> Do not sell your house until you get on one good street. <laughs> until you get accredited. So you're probably already doing it. It's really just tapping into the latent capacity of the street. Mo many people do. So many people say, I've got a nonna that's down the road. I do the gardening. I do you know, X, Y, Z. It's, it's already happening. So Australia can do it in a fire, in a flood, in a fun run. We're amazing at being generous. We one Good Street helps you do it on a more regular basis. And there's a range of different things by lo engaging with the local aged care facility or just helping out in any way through either Christmas hampers, working with your local community nurses, partnering with Rotary. Rotary is amazing. We've just forgotten how amazing they are because we've all got assessed with other things. They're kind of the, this lifeblood within Australian society. And, uh, and because they're all 75 plus, 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 we, we're a bit ageist and, and don't think they matter as much. So connecting in with your local Rotary is a great way to see all the great stuff that you can do. But if you want to get involved, you're probably already doing great stuff and it's just acknowledging the awesome stuff you're already doing. Any more from the audience? Does anybody in the audience? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, we talked about multicultural Australia and um, all the aspects of that, and you talked about activity, but um, I found <coughs> that people, through experience and other things, that often their mother tongue isn't used through their adult active life, um, through jobs and stuff, but when they retire, when they're in their social groups, they go back to their mother tongue, and, you know, my grandparents are speak Austrian and they often talking to me and going in between language and they um, find more confident with their <coughs> cultural group but their cultural groups all throughout uh, Victoria and Australia and obviously the world. So how this changing of language and like increasing language of, cha um, of your original language when you get older, <laughs> like what aspect does that have on loneliness and should it be welcomed or fought or yeah, like how do we deal with it? Some of the best uh, programs I've seen is where they tap in students that are learning that particular language with those older people and just set up um, this Skype conversation so you have regular Skype conversations. That's where creativity can collide with that and offer other opportunities. And they did that in, um, uh, they've done it in quite a, two, a few retirement uh, villages where they had people who were learning English in Portugal and in Peru Skype into an Australian aged care facility to practice that language. So there's opportunities there, uh, absolutely. What we're finding now in, in the um, council flats in Flemington, North Melbourne, is that a lot of Horn of Africa, uh, African grandmas, um, their families are now moving out to Melton and leaving them. So there's this new kind of wave of, they call them the aunties, and so the aunties aren't getting the connection as much as, as they have, where before, when people migrated through, they stayed together in those council flats as a whole unit. But now it, things are changing. So therefore, families are now moving away, leaving. So we've got this new kind of, um, you know, it's unusual to see someone from Eatria uh, accessing our services on One Good Street because they live totally alone, isolated. It's really unusual. Um, but, it, but it is happening. So there's got to be, uh, we're an awareness of, of emerging cultural groups and how to join them together uh, to, to, uh, to provide some kind of response to that. At Friends for Good, do you have um, volunteers that speak different languages? We do, and it's something that we're 
steadily increasing in terms of our phone service because, it's, as you can imagine, it's very much supply and demand, as it were. Um, hosting things like community lunches, working in the neighbourhood house sector as well. Um, we see people do it quite informally. So our neighbourhood house borders a big park. There's an accessible play space. There's a football ground. Things are being renovated, etc. So there's lots of uh, another neighbour, uh, another community centre behind us. They have a lot of senior groups who meet based on cultural identity. So there's the um, Polish men's group, for example, etc., etc. And the club they all call it. So everyone goes to the club, like it's some kind of '90s rave. It's great. But people meet socially outside as well, and then they see other needs. So one of the things that I've seen just happen because there was a physical space for it was. Um, a group of older Sudanese women um, with kids, at, watching kids at the playground. And they're like, oh, all our kids are grown up and I just happen to come here, past the shops, etc., etc. Um, so they've started to volunteer with the playgroup um, and it's giving them, like, they're seen as, like, these guardians of the group because they're, they're the grandmas, they have this real strong social status being connected with the group, they're getting to mix with people of different ages um, and that was all just by them hanging out at the park basically and just coming across groups and things like that. So that's very much rooted in their cultural identities as well. Um, it's very much a language-based group too. So just having the space and that just sort of happened. Um, but things don't really happen though, do they? Like it's an interesting thing to have observed and to seen happening. Any other questions? Yes. I was hearing about the data, and it sounded like uh, most probably the data are based on people, at least not teenagers, like uh, either senior citizen or uh, mature adults. And they probably were born way before social media or digital communication. They had, I'm generalizing, probably they have uh, way better communication skill, at least face-to-face -face communication skills. But the teenagers or the kids who are growing up now uh, who have less practice or even the skill of that communication skills, uh, in terms of ne neuroscience or nervous system, what do you think uh, how they are going to cope when they are going to grow up and what will the epidemic will be like? So we actually just had a, another report come out recently that was about young Victorians. And so we were looking at um, adolescents aged from 12 to 18 years and then young people aged from 18 to 25. And we were looking at their loneliness. We weren't able to look in their brains or anything like that. So I can't speak to the neuroscience side of that. But what we did actually see was that young adolescents are actually far less lonely than young adults. So when we look at that group that's aged 18 to 25, they're far more lonely than our teenagers who are still at school with their peer group, still at home with their family. It actually seems to be protective in that time of life. And then it's that transition time where you go out of school and you're like, oh gosh, what am I doing with my life? And I'm away from all the people that I've spent the last 10 or you know, 15 years with or my whole life with, that then suddenly this loneliness comes on and people don't quite know what to do with themselves. So I think that's a really important group. Um, and we are looking within our research at the use of social media as well and how that affects loneliness and what we're seeing so far is that maybe it's not as bad as what we all think that it is because it does help to create connections and give opportunities. And like Matthew was saying before, was you know, a hello on Instagram is better than no hello at all. So it creates these opportunities that then maybe we can transition into real life. Right, guys? <laughs> That is often um, a certain thing is like, you know, young people have forgotten how, like, you know, don't know how to communicate and we've lost that and the older generation are. But it's interesting to know that, um, yeah, they are communicating. They're communicating on a different level and there's no exact data to say that that Instagram hello isn't as 
um, not as valid. And I guess that harks back to me always thinking, yes, can a hug from a robot replace a hug from a human? And I think the research in Japan is showing that it can, in a sense, if you've got the $6,000 robotic seal. Um, but yeah, because but that's, that's certainly something that I've learned because, and I guess um, we are living in an age where, you know, technology exists, where some people say like we're the guinea pigs of the technological age because we don't necessarily have had like somebody, um, you know, start from start to finish kind of live in this. So, um, yeah, thank you. I've learned a lot. Maybe I will get a robot. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, any other questions? Claire and the panel. Would anybody else like to... I was just going to say thank you so much for coming and enriching my understanding of um, loneliness. And um, I'd like to give a big hand to our panellists. Yes. Thank you. And if you're feeling lonely tonight and maybe and your thing is talking to somebody, by all means, come and say hi to us. We'll be here um, gathering and having a little bit of a debrief. So, yeah, you're more than welcome to. And um, thank you for coming to M Pavilion. There's a lot of, um, yeah, free programming every day until March. So, um, yeah, thanks again. And um, we'll, we've got some actual... I've got postcards of for real life that we will print if you want to find out about future events that we will be putting on. So I will bring those out because I forgot them at the beginning. So they're here. Thank you. can put you. them at the bar. Yeah. I'll put them at the bar. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.